Beginning in verse 1, Revelation 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. I want to read verse 5 one more time. This is the key verse of the chapter. Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. This is what God loves to do. And, and I'm so impressed by the character and the nature of God and how He continues to do new things. That nothing ends up old hat with God. When we, we look at, at the Lord and we, and we think about or consider the Ancient of Days and the things that God did in the former times and yet we come to realize that God is constantly doing new things. He loves to do new things. About two and a half, three, almost three years ago now, it'll be three years October, when we started our first Bible study across there in the Gilmore's living room. I went back and I was listening uh, probably about two months ago. Uh, Aaron said you ought to go back and listen to the Genesis study that you all started out with. So I went back and I just heard the first one. Just out of curiosity, what did I talk about back then when we were first starting the bridge? And the first thing I said was God loves to do new things. The bridge was brand new at the time, still feels new to me, pretty much on a day-in, day-out basis. But the bridge was new, and there were fellowships happening that were new, and, and relationships beginning that were new. And we began with Genesis, going all the way back to creation, and recognizing that the Lord loves to do new things. That's why He created the earth. It was something that had never been done. It was new for the Father. And He doesn't stop doing new things. Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you San Juan Islands, I added San Juan, but you islands, and those who dwell on them. I love to do new things, the Father would say. And there is always something new for you. For those of you who wonder, when we get into eternity, will it get old after a year or a few billion? Will it start to just be like, what's next? I submit that it will not be old. God loves to do new things. Just when you think you haven't figured out, He goes, oh, wait until you see this. Wait until you experience this. I have something for you you have not experienced yet. And I personally believe that's going to continue on into eternity. Just when we start to settle, God's going to go, Hey, wait! i got an idea. Check this out. It's the way it must have been at creation. I love just thinking about how it, how it was there. As Father, Son, Spirit began to create and the angels began to gather around and watch what was happening, this amazing thing. What a joyous occasion that must have been. He loves to do new things. He's into new beginnings. And he invites us to be those who sing a new song. Back in the late 70s, Keith Green wrote a song, I Can't Wait to Get to Heaven. It was a real popular song among Christians back in that time. 
And uh, the chorus, I can't wait to get to heaven where he'll wipe away all my tears. In six days he created the whole world, but he's been working on heaven 2,000 years. And it just kind of gives you a thrill. Now I want you to consider something tonight. Revelation 21.5, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. But here's what amazes me. Here's the big, the big news. At this point, that is, at this point, Revelation 21, in the scheme of things, in history, in God's program, the rapture of the church that we all long for and look forward to is going to be an old thing. At this point in God's plan, the glorious appearing of Jesus that we can't wait to experience is past tense. The millennial kingdom that we pray when we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That millennial kingdom, it's old hat. Been there, done that. But now God says, I am making something brand new. Just when we thought it was time to wind down and settle in, the Lord says, Got something new for you. Check this out. You want to see what I'm doing next? Revelation 21, he begins to say, I'm doing something new. And listen, what he's going to do new, as we look at it tonight, has never been done before. We're going to look at several things. I'll give you a four-part outline for tonight. We're going to look at a new creation, a new communion, a new community, and finally, a new capital. Let's start with the first one. A new creation. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. God is going to make a new creation. And you need to understand, when he says I'm making something new, it's not refurbishing this old world. It's not fixing it back up. It's not trying to get it back. It's not a remodel. It's not a remodel. Joe, Karen, it's not a remodel. So you don't have to... (laughs) They just remodeled their kitchen. And it's not. That's not what's going on here. This is a brand new creation. Jesus is going to remodel, by the way, for the millennial kingdom. This world is going to be remodeled, refurbished, brought up to speed, cleaned up, eaten light in in, in our existence here at that time. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 and 2 says, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Araba will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Right now, the glory of Lebanon, Beirut, is not in good shape. There's no glory there. It's a mess. It's, it's been terrorized by, by the acts of war going on, by the Israeli bombs coming in, in response to, of course, Hezbollah's terrorist actions. I don't blame Israel. In fact, I'm supportive of what they're doing at this time. They need to be able to defend themselves. But the glory of Lebanon, in other words, Lebanon refurbished, Lebanon cleaned up, Lebanon made over. And they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. God, And it says, For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And scorched lands will become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals its resting place. Grass, I like this phrase, grass becomes reeds and rushes. Why? Because it will flow with springs. With fresh waters. That's the old earth. Renewed. Made new. But now we see a whole new ball game. When he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, we can trace back to Isaiah 65, verse 17, where the Lord says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. You need to track this. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible says, In the beginning was God. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word created is the word, the Hebrew word bara. Isaiah uses the same Hebrew word in Isaiah 65, 17. Bara. Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. So what's the big deal? It's just create. The word create, it means to create something out of nothing. Not to recreate, but to create something that never existed before. So the new heaven and the new earth is not this earth. It's not the heavens above us tonight. It is brand new something created out of nothing. Fresh and new, clean, perfect. So you might ask, well, what happens to the old earth? If he's creating a brand new earth, what is it that happens to the old earth? Turning your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Where we can get some illumination and some understanding about what, to some, may seem to be contradictory sections of Scripture. John says that the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And John says, I saw those for the old heaven and the old earth. They have passed away. So what happened to them? This is a wonderfully important teaching. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning about verse 3. Know this first of all, Peter writes, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And that is a statement, by the way, of the evolutionist. Now, they might not use the word creation, but they would say all has continued somewhat as it was. Oh, there's been evolutionary change, but the earth has just rolled on and on and on for billions of years. Nothing's happened major in those billions of years, just changes over time, minute changes. That's what evolution needs, by the way, to work, is it needs billions of years. You can't have evolution in six or seven thousand years. You've got to have billions of years for those alphabets to spell out the Declaration of Independence. Have you heard that example? For the world to be what it is today, by evolutionary means, it's like taking a box of alphabets and throwing it up into the air, and when it comes down, it spells out the Declaration of Independence. Well, that's kind of the idea you're thinking of when you say the world got to where it is today by evolution. Things just tiny little changes, but it's just kind of rolled on for billions of years. Not so. Not so. Peter says, mockers will come saying, everything's the way it's always been. He says in verse 5, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water, being flooded with water. In other words, those who would say, yeah, but you've got sedimentary layers going down that prove that this earth has just evolved over billions of years. No, there was a massive flood which caused all those sedimentary layers. And it wasn't until the eruption of Mount St. Helens that people were able to see, in a short order, how quickly a devastating natural disaster like that could cause something to look like it had been around for a long, long time when it only happened weeks ago. And so, Peter says, when someone says, the earth just spins on, it's always been, it's always going to be, it, it escapes their notice that the flood happened. It escapes their notice that the world was destroyed the first time. Verse 7, he says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And I'll just uh, encourage you, if you take notes in your Bible, you might want to underline reserved and kept. Reserved and kept in that verse. I'll come back to that in just a second. 
Do not let this one fact escape your notice, verse 8, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Mockers will come. Mockers will come, and they'll say, last day's Bible prophecy is for fanatics. It's for weirdos. It's for people who worship in a barn. And we all know that life goes on just as it always has. Live for today. Live in the moment. Live for now. The past is nothing. The future is nothing. Peter says people who think that are voluntarily ignorant specifically of the flood. Specifically of the flood. You see, things were different on earth even before, and even in the heavens before the flood. This was a different world than it was after the flood. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 2 verse 6 tells us a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And as a matter of fact, do you know it never rained on earth? There's no mention of rain on earth until the flood. One of the reasons why people couldn't believe it and it was so devastating was it, would, it had never happened. Why would you think water was going to fall out of the sky if you had never seen it? Until that point, the Bible tells us that a mist rose up from the earth to water the surface of the earth. And scientists, even non-believing scientists, look back and understand now that there was something in the earth's atmosphere that changed at one point. That this earth used to be under what we call a water canopy. Literally, there was water, and the Bible talks about this, not only on the earth, but water above the heavens. A canopy of water that surrounded the earth. What would that do? Well, it would protect against the harmful rays of the sun in amazing ways. In fact, if not for the harmful rays of the sun, we would live much longer than we do. If we had that water canopy today, people could live eight, nine hundred years. Part of the reason, in fact, the major reason why we have cancer, why we have death in the world today, is because of the rays of the sun. And those rays are so potent that even in the night, when we're sleeping tonight, the sun's rays are going through the earth and are impacting your body. That's how intense the rays of the sun are. But with that water canopy that the Bible describes, we would have been, the world was protected against that. Now what happened in the flood? The water canopy burst wide open, not only flooding the earth, but it also destroyed that first heaven. The destruction of the heavens and the earth, as Peter refers to. That the earth, the world was at that time destroyed. Heavens and earth completely. But apparently, when the Lord did that, all of this, this flooding, this destruction, it changed everything. Now read on, verse 10 in, in uh, 2 Peter 3. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which, now watch this, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says, there's going to be a massive destruction. This heaven, this earth, will be completely wiped out. Now when we study Revelation, we've got to ask the question, when? When does that happen? Because as we studied, chapter 19, Jesus returns, actually go back, chapter 4, we see an experience, a picture of the rapture of the church. The church is pulled out. And then in Revelation 19, Jesus returns, Revelation 20, the thousand year reign of Christ, Revelation now 21, the new heavens and the new earth. So where in there 
is this destruction that Peter talks about? Let me give you some things to consider here. The Greek word for elements, elements, which is back in verse 10, that the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed. The Greek word for elements, important here, it's stoikia. Stoikia, it's literally the word for the Greek alphabet. It would be similar to our word alphabet, stoikia. Elements is a great translation though because if you consider the alphabet, just as alphabetical letters are the building blocks of language, so the elements in the world are the building blocks of the physical world. The elements. And Peter uses this word and he says that the heat will be so intense it will literally melt the elements. But Peter was a scientist long before his time. He was a fisherman and a scientist. Look back at verse 7. Check out what he says. Verse 7 he says, By his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire and kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter knew something that he could not have possibly known. When he makes this statement, when he makes this statement that, again, things are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction, that the elements themselves will pass away. Check this out. The Greek word kept is tereo, tereo, meaning held within. Peter says there is a fire or an energy that is kept inside present creation. There is a fire, there is an energy, there is a power inside the elements. But this idea of a force or a fire that intense inside the elements would have been the stuff of folly and fancy in Peter's day, not in ours. For in our day, a group of scientists, interestingly by the way, these guys were for the most part all Jewish minds, taught us something about the elements. Something that we can understand in our day. Men like Albert Einstein and Enrico Fermi and Robert Oppenheimer. These men, among others, discovered something about the elements, something inside the elements. In the elements at the atomic and the subatomic levels. Three things to know about this. First, there is energy and motion in everything. Now, scientists have figured this out. They understand this. That everything, everything that we consider solid is actually energy and motion. That the chairs you're sitting on, the only reason why they seem solid is because those things within the chairs at the subatomic level are moving around so fast that it seems solid. Isn't that bizarre? But that's the truth. That's what science has figured out. Solid mass is just particles moving at an incredibly fast rate. So fast that it feels like it's actually solid. And this speed, these dynamically uh, moving atoms, they generate intense energy. Second thing to know, these atoms are made up of three types of particles. Didn't know you were going to be in science class tonight. Peter didn't know either, but he wrote about it. Three types of particles, positively and negatively charged particles, and they are electrons, neutrons, and protons. Anybody going back now to high school biology and, and all that? Electrons, neutrons, and protons, these three particles make up the atom. Third thing to know. There's a massive amount of energy within the nucleus of an atom itself because it is packed tight with protons. But here's the thing that's bizarre and scientists cannot explain it or understand it. The makeup of the nucleus makes no logical sense according to science. It's packed full of protons, but those protons within the nucleus are all positively charged. Now, stay with me on this because it's interesting. You might say, so what? So they're positively charged protons. Big deal. Well, there's a law in science called Cullum's Law that states the following. Like charges repel each other. 
Like charges repel. If you, if you, just to make it a little more clear, when I was a kid, I used to go to Solving with my parents, a little Dutch town in, in uh, I guess it was Dutch. Was it Dutch? Yeah, I think it was. Um, in Southern California. And we go there, and one of the things that I loved to buy when I was a real little kid was the little Scotty dogs. There's a white one and a black one. Do you remember those? And they were magnets, basically. And you put them together, and if they were facing each other, they'd kiss. But if you turn one dog around, so the rear end of one dog was by the nose of the other one, it would do what most dogs wouldn't do. They'd run away. Think about that. Most dogs, nose to rear, that's how they say hi. Very weird. I'm glad we don't do that as people. But these little magnets, that, that's an example of Cullum's Law. Like charges repel. When you try and put positive to positive, it pushes away. It doesn't want to stay together. You have to go positive to negative to get it to stick. And so you would put in the little black Scotty dog and the white Scotty dog, there would be a negative nose and a positive nose, and they would stick. But you put the positive nose to the positive rear end, and it would push it away. Okay, that's Cullum's law, and that's how it works. And there's an unanswerable question for nuclear scientists today: Why do all these positively charged protons stick together in the nucleus of an atom? They shouldn't do it. What should happen is they should absolutely explode, because they're all positively charged, and yet somehow they stick. What do they call that in science? I love the word for this. It's called <laughs> it's called atomic glue. That's the best they can do. Some call it strong nuclear force that these positively charged protons stick together inside the atom. In other words, no one knows why this happens. No one can explain or understand. We can. We can. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 tells us, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and listen to this, in him all things hold together. Jesus is the atomic glue. Jesus, it is his power that holds the very elements of the atoms themselves, the nucleus, the protons. He's the one that holds them together. And the moment Jesus lets go, gang, boom, it'll all blow apart. Biblically, the reason why we have any kind of stability on planet Earth right now is because Jesus is still holding on. It's by his power. He holds it together. Well, Peter gives us an amazingly accurate description. A day is coming when all this energy, this fire, will be released with a huge bang. This is, by the way, the real Big Bang. The biblical Big Bang. It's a Big Bang that will happen. All the elements will literally at that point then be dissolved. That's what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter chapter 3. God will destroy the old and he will bring in the new. Now this comes back to this question. But when does this happen? How do we reconcile this massive destruction of the heavens and the earth... How do we reconcile this with the studies in Revelation? I think it will happen at the throne judgment. Look back at Revelation chapter 20 now. Flip back over there. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Listen to how John describes what happens at the white throne judgment. He says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I think that's what's being talked about right there. 2 Peter 3, Revelation 20, verse 11. That's the connection. Earth and heaven fled away at the white throne judgment. At that time, literally the Greek word for fled away is fugo. It means to disappear quickly, to be forgotten. And by the way, if a car manufacturer ever comes out with a car called a fugo, don't buy it. (laughs) 
It's going to flee away from you. You'll lose it. The old is gone. The new has come. Perfect, holy, and beautiful. The new heaven and the new earth. Now, you might say, I understand why there needs to be a new earth. That makes sense to me, because the old one is so trashed with sin. But a new heaven? Why does there need to be a new heaven? Gang, the heavens have been polluted by sin as well. As a matter of fact, all the way up until a certain point, and we studied this earlier on in Revelation, we know that Satan even now has access to heaven, doesn't he? Satan has access even to come before the throne of God. Read about it in Job, where all the sons of God were coming presenting themselves to the Lord. All the angels, and, and, and Satan came among them. We're told in Revelation and in other places that he is the accuser of the brethren. Day and night he stands to accuse us. Saying, well Lord, look at that. Look at what's going on down there. Even the heavens, gang, are polluted by sin. And so in the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create, it's going to be absolutely perfect. A new creation. No existence whatsoever of sin. Nothing in the new heaven and new earth to trip us up. It's going to be ideal. This is what God has coming for us. Isn't that great? You won't even have the opportunity to be tempted again. Well, verse 2 going on. Tells us, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. First, we have a new creation. Secondly, we have a new communion. We will commune with God in an intimacy at a level unlike anything we have ever experienced in our lives. The actual presence of the Lord. We will experience God in amazing new ways. Ways that we can't right now. We have a limitation of the flesh. We will not have that. We're going to have a new communion. A couple things to jot down about this new communion. First of all is the presence of God Himself. Verse 3 tells us, tells us that His tabernacle, His tabernacle will be among us. His tabernacle will be among us. Notice it says His tabernacle in verse, 20, in verse 2, not His temple. I guess it's verse 3, isn't it? The tabernacle of God is among us, not the temple of God. What's the difference? Well, think about it. The temple was that solid structure set in Jerusalem, and the people had to go to the temple. The people had to come to Jerusalem to see God, to experience God, to, to be near God. The temple. But this is not the temple. It says that the tabernacle of God will be with us. The temple was grounded. It was immovable. The tabernacle went where the people went. The tabernacle was dynamic. The tabernacle led the people forward and the people camped around it. And people will no longer, in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, they're not going to have to go to a certain place to see God. He will be tabernacling among us. Which, by the way, brings this idea to mind. John 1.14 tells us the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You might say, well, Rick, my translation says dwelt among us. Yeah, the word dwelt is tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us, Jesus did, and we saw his glory. The children of Israel never had this. Well, they had the tabernacle, but they never had the dwelling presence of the Lord like we do even today. The Israelites didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit the way we do today. They had to go to the high priest. The high priest had to intercede for them, had to go between them and God. Let me remind you of something. 
We talk a lot about intercessory prayer, and well we should, because as Christians we are called to intercede for each other. But nobody needs another person to go between them and the Lord. You can go direct to the Father. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. We have a direct access that Israel didn't have. But you know what? Even for that, we don't have the kind of access today that we will have. We still, though we can commune with God in spirit, we still aren't quite there. We still don't have that presence of the Lord, that absolute intimacy where God says, you have a tear in your eye, I'm going to wipe it away myself. He's going to pull out that holy handkerchief and just wipe away the tears and wipe away the sorrows and they will be gone. Verse 4 tells us, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. Hallelujah. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Those were all part of the first things. But remember, God's doing a new thing. Everything is going to be brand new. So not only will we have the presence of God, but in this new communion, we will have the absence of grief. The absence of grief. Let me ask you two difficult questions to consider. These are questions that I've been asked. If those whom I love on earth today are not there, how can I truly experience paradise? If family members or friends, people that I know, never choose Jesus and therefore don't enter into eternity and are not there, how can I truly be happy? People ask this question, well, what if I get there and she's not there? In fact, it's one of the major stoppers, even for people having faith in Jesus, who have friends and family members who don't believe. I've shared this before, but Darwin's brothers and, and father didn't believe. Darwin himself was an altar boy as a child. He ended up walking away from faith primarily because he could not believe in a God who would send his father and his brothers to hell. And so this very question would have been applicable to the man Darwin if those whom I love on earth today are not going to be there, how can I truly experience paradise? And God offers us an amazing blessing. Back in Isaiah 65, 17, when he says, hey, I'm doing a new thing. I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth. He says, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. God is going to bless us. And I truly believe when he wipes the tears away from our eyes, he's going to wipe from our memories those things that pain us today. Those things that hurt us today, that we concern ourselves with, that we worry about. But think about this. There is one person throughout all eternity that will have no memory loss. And that's the Father. For every one of those people that we feel regret or remorse or a sorrow because we know that they are not with the Father or will not be with the Father if there's not a change of heart. Every one of those situations that's painful for us, how much more so for the Father who created them, and yet He will never forget. He will remember. He will carry that, but His love is so great for us. His love is so great for us that He will not make us recall those things as well. The former things, they're not going to be remembered. They're not going to come to mind. This new communion promises a new closeness. But gang, it's not only with God. It's also with each other. People have asked the question, how will we know each other in heaven if we're spirit? How are we going to know? Dang, we're going to know each other better than we know each other now. We already have a tendency to kind of know each other spiritually. But John Corson, he puts it this way. He says, we will not really know each other until heaven. 
we're not going to really know each other at all until heaven. Right now, we've got this, this stuff called flesh that gets in the way of our relationships. This skin that literally hampers our closeness, our intimacy. It keeps us from being... And the sin nature, if that doesn't cause our relationship struggles, all that's going to be gone. We're going to have an intimacy with each other that's amazing. We're going to finally discover the true wonder of who we are. All the irritations and idiosyncrasies, all the things that bug us about everybody else, and there are a few things among you that I'm not going to talk about tonight. But all the things done against us, all the sins, all of the problems, all the things that we've done to hurt other people, gone. And they will not be remembered. And so we will have finally, finally, we will have the freedom to love each other the way we're called to love each other. To know each other in a way that we don't know each other even now. But, but Paul says you can begin that process. If you step into Christ, you already begin to see people differently than if you're outside of Christ. Well, what do you mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 5.16 Paul says, Therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come, which means even if someone gets a bad haircut, you can still see them in the Spirit. Why did I mention that? Well, I don't know. But let's move on. Verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And this is the key verse again of chapter 21. All things new. And John is told to write this down. These words are faithful and true. Now why do you have to write that? We know these words are faithful and true. Why? Because what he is about to share literally seems too good to be true. Now to me, the new creation, awesome. I mean, as amazing as this creation is, a new one, that's going to be mind-blowing. A, a new communion, a relationship with God beyond what I've known before, incredible. It gets better. Verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It says in verse 7, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 6 again, it is done. It is done. This is the finished work of God. This is the whole point. Back from the first, first moment of creation. Let there be light. From that point all the way up to the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. Now it's finally done. Now we have the consummation of everything that God had planned. The Garden of Eden was a snapshot of this future that God truly desires. To be able to walk with us in the cool of the day in the garden. It is done. We've heard this said before. It is done. The redemptive work of Christ on the cross when He said, It's finished. Teleos. And He died on Calvary. It is done. The complete, the completion of God's wrath on earth. We saw that earlier in, in the chapter. At the end of 18, beginning of 19. It is done. His wrath, his wrath completed. And finally it is done. The new community is here. That's the third thing in our outline tonight. New creation, a new communion. And number three, a new community. A new community. Again, not a fixer-upper. This is not a bank repo that we're talking about here. This is an absolutely, perfectly created new community. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, is the provider. And watch this. In the new community, three things to jot down. There are three resources. 
There are free resources. You don't have to go to the store and buy Costco Kirkland premium drinking water anymore. No, the water's free. Water used to be free in this world. I don't know what happened. Someone got the idea. You know, if we pour it into bottles, people will pay money for that. It's incredible. The Native American Indians will be freaking out. You know? Are you kidding? The water that I just drank out of stream, you buy that out of bottles? That's exactly what we do. Free resources. And the source of the living water is more clearly explained in Revelation 22. We'll see that as we close out next week. It's amazing. But this water, this fresh, clear water, flows directly out of the throne of God and the Lamb. And it will flow constantly. And it is free. And, and it's for anyone who wants to be satisfied. And let me ask you this. Think about this question. Are you ever fully satisfied as a Christian? I want to be. But I'm not. Jim and I were just talking about this before. The British Christian Fellowship, still being a relatively young church, we have, we're basically laying foundation right now. We're still in the foundation stage. Do you, do you realize that? And sometimes someone, someone will come along and say, oh, but I want this program or I want that thing. And we're like, well, we're still here. You know, you're, you're a brick about four stories up. But even once we build all the bricks and get up to the fourth story, if the Lord allows that, Lord willing and the saints don't rise, change your little phrase there I like that even if the Lord allows time for us to get up to the fourth floor and to stick that brick in at that level guess what we're still not going to be satisfied there's still more bricks that we're going to put in and more windows we're going to have more remodeling we're getting we're constantly we are just not satisfied as Christians we always want more sometimes it's even frustrating you know I say look great things are happening here and what we were happy with a year ago, now we're going, we do something else now? You know, we're not ever fully satisfied. We're like you too. We still haven't found what we're looking for. We could sing that song as an anthem. But gang, at the end of days, at the end of days, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, we're going to be satisfied in the new community in ways we can't imagine. We will fully drink to satisfaction. We will be satiated with the experience of God. You know, days like today, are, this has just been a great day. Last Sunday was a great day. We had two more baptisms this week. It was so fun to go into the pond and to experience that, to see it happen. Have the horse come into the barn. You know, how many churches... You know, the Crystal Cathedral... In Southern California, maybe you've heard of it, Robert Schuler's Church, and they do this big, massive thing every Easter and every Christmas. And they have to buy and hire animals to come in for their productions. <laughs> See what you get at the bridge? It's amazing. We can provide this all for free. So there are free resources. <laughs> free resources. But even as wonderful as days like these can be, we still end up waking up the next morning going, I want more. I need a little more. Father, can you give me more? Because we're not to be satisfied until we fully receive that new community. There are free resources. There are also, by the way, family responsibilities. Check this out. Verse 7 tells us that he who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. The person who overcomes receives an inheritance. But it's more than a financial or, or some kind of a tangible reward. An inheritance is a responsibility. For the prodigal son, you all know the, whole, the very famous parable of Jesus, the prodigal son. The prodigal son got his so-called inheritance from his father, but he couldn't enjoy it or experience it until he went home and served and worked in his father's business. He went out and squandered his so-called inheritance, but that wasn't his inheritance. The inheritance of a son is to, is to take over what the father has. 
to experience what the Father has. It's being coming responsible for the things that belong to the Father. Here are some hints, by the way, of inherited responsibilities in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us a couple of things that are pretty mind-boggling. I don't know how it's exactly going to work. But we're told, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, I believe that's referring to the millennial kingdom, that we will have a, a positions of, of ruling and reigning with Christ, as Revelation told us two, three different times in, the, in, the, in our study, that we will come back and rule and reign with Him. And so the saints will judge the world, Paul says. But in verse 3 he says, Do you not know we will judge the angels? I love that verse. I mean, that's going to be fun. Michael, can you straighten that tie, please? <laughs> Listen, Gabriel is a great song this morning, but that third note in the second stanza, a little off on that, buddy. need you to change that, work on that. Get that embouchure down so you can play the trumpet. You know, we're going to judge the angels. How does that look? I have no idea. But gang, it happens in that millennial kingdom and beyond. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, in the parable of the talents, tells us the following. For to everyone who has... More shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. What's that talking about? The more that you have in Christ, the more that you apply yourself now. And I'm not talking about salvation. I always want to make that distinction with people. It's not what you do gets more salvation. Man, when you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you give your life to Jesus, you're saved. You have your salvation but the more you serve God in this life, the more you do for the Lord in this life, I believe the more you will be given rewards-wise, the more responsibility you will be given in eternity. There is a connection there. Everyone who has, more shall be given. He'll have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 tells us, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we're not going to sit around on clouds playing, playing harps and wearing halos. That's not heaven. That's the world's really watered down, I think Satan's watered down view of eternity. I mean, one of the things that he whispers to people in churches, to Christians all over the place who have never taken the time to study Revelation, is number one, Revelation is too hard to understand. And number two, eternity is going to be boring. Live now. Who wants to sit around? Who wants to float? Floating with the angels. Who wants to do that? It, it, it comes from a place of no idea what the scriptures truly teach. We will have inherited responsibilities, family responsibilities, and so when someone asks, what are we going to do in heaven? You just say, I don't know about you, but I'm taking over the family business. I'm going into the family business. That's what I'm doing. Third thing that we see in this new community, there is a fantastic relationship. We all will be his sons. Literally, the phrase here in verse 7 he who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's moi ho shuios from the Greek. He will be a son to me. He'll be a son to me. I wrote a song um, a little while ago where one of the lines in it says, um, oh, how does it go? The chorus, Dormagan. I call you father, you call me son. And every time we sing that song, I happen to know that Sandra changes son to daughter. Which she's not allowed to do. It's not how I wrote it, Sandra. All right? 
I, I, he calls me son. And I wrote it that way on purpose. And I knew, you know, when we sing that song, every single woman singing it's going to immediately feel like, ah, it's not really for me. No, it is for you. We will all be sons. Not in terms of, of the maleness of things, but in terms of the inheritance. We saw an early picture of that. You may recall in Numbers 27 and Numbers 36, the picture of Zelophehad's daughters who received an inheritance when no daughters received an inheritance. For all intents and purposes, the girls that were daughters to Zelophehad became sons in their inheritance because they had the same rights and privileges of the firstborn son. Yeah, they were women. Yeah, they were daughters. But they had the same exact equal rights as the sons. And when he says, hey, to the overcomer, you will be sons to me. I'll be your God. You're going to be my sons. Ladies, this is for you as much as it is for the guys. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. We cry out as His sons. Now some might say, okay, but that's just another example of the male-dominated scriptures and how the Bible is written by patriarchal machismo. Which is a great word. Machismo is pretty much machisi, if you ask me. But people will say that. Ladies, again, listen up. It applies to you. That you will, he will be your God and you will be his sons. Like Zelophehad's daughters, you will be sons in terms of inheritance. You will have the same inheritance. It's hard to grasp because we're so about the sexes in our world and especially in our culture. And about our differences. But remember, this is the new community. And there is a new communion. And there is a new intimacy. And I don't believe we're going to have the kinds of divisions, even sexually, that we have right now. We will all be just His people. His sons. Now, men of the macho mindset, listen up. Don't forget, we're also called the bride of Christ. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Or don't. Maybe not. Not a good idea. In the new community, we have free resources, family responsibilities, a fantastic relationship. But listen, one more. We also have a firm rest. A firm rest. And this might be hard to swallow in the middle of all these wonderful things. Verse 8, John writes, For the cowardly and the unbelieving... And abominable and murderers and immoral persons and all sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Why in the middle of this wonderful description, John, we're rolling along so well, why do you insert this negative verse, this reminder of all these bad things? I mean, it's kind of like, anybody here been to Bouchard Gardens up in Victoria? You know, the big massive just flowers. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's like going there to discuss flowers for a funeral. That's just probably not the right setting for that. Go to a funeral home if you want to talk about But to walk around all of that beauty and go, oh, those would be nice right over the casket. And I like that right there, maybe in the dark corner of the funeral home. It doesn't make sense. And that's what you see right here is John's writing along about these wonderful new things. And he says, oh, and by the way, all these people, all these things, they are reserved for the lake of fire. Why does he stick it in right here? Because he is stating clearly and unequivocally that these things will not be a part of the new community. They will not be there. All of these horrors that affect planet Earth today will not exist in new community. So as negative a verse as that is, it's actually very positive because he's saying you don't have to deal with any of this, including liars, which by the way was the first sin, wasn't it? the first thing that got the whole sin thing rolling back in the garden. The lies, the deceit, 
of the enemy. But there's no room for it in new community. Now, you know what I want to do? I want to take five minutes and have you stand up right here. Take a little break, get some water, stretch. You may not even be tired, but I want you to be fresh for the last part, and we're going to get into that in just a second. Five-minute study break.